My Story podcast. That's where we sit down and we speak with different people and learn more to their story. We had a great conversation with Jennifer. That was a lot of fun. And, you know, the thing I really enjoyed about talking with her today was just the the path she went through from being a lawyer to getting back into music. Oh, absolutely. It's fun because I, you know, as we've said before, we meet these people here where they are, but don't know any of her history. And she has a great history. Yes, she has such an infectious energy about her, too. She can just get everybody on board with what she wants to do, and and she makes it so much fun. Yeah, we had a great time. We hope you enjoy the podcast. It was uh, was a really good time with Jennifer. Welcome, Jennifer, to More to My Story podcast. We're excited to have you here today. Uh, We're remote, recording through Zoom, so it's uh, a little different, but I appreciate you jumping on today and, and talking with us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. A little nervous. Oh, my goodness. Don't be nervous. No. I will tell you, I am personally so excited because we had tried to get you um, scheduled before the whole coronavirus hit um, Texas so bad. And I know you keep a really busy schedule, so we are delighted to be able to schedule you to get started because when I read some of the notes about you, I cannot wait to hear more to your story. Oh, thank you. Well, we'll just jump right into it. Um, you know, reading through some of the notes we've got from you and, and also from uh, a couple of people you, you turned us to, you were born in Virginia, but then you moved to Texas and, and kind of take it from there. Tell us what, what it was like growing up in Texas. Well, I grew up in the Dallas area, so we moved to Texas when I was about 18 months old. So I have no recollection of life in Virginia at all. Um, I'm the youngest of three, and, you know, we grew up like most of the kids in the in the 70s outside a lot, playing with our friends and uh, being in neighborhood nuisances a little bit and um, going to church every Sunday and getting involved in school. You know, it, when I was growing up, there weren't a whole lot of uh, organized sports like there are now, so there um Weekends were pretty much free for us to just play and make up games and be with our friends and read and and be kids. So it was nice. Absolutely, absolutely. So real quick, then, were were your family are they from Virginia originally, or were they there a few years and and came back to Texas? No, they weren't from Virginia originally. But um, my grandfather, my mom's dad, was. very big in the precursor to the FAA. So um, he was in what was called the CAA, the Civil Aeronautics Administration. And so he was in that region. Um, And then what actually brought us to Texas is that my grandfather was relocated to Fort Worth to be the head of the CAA, which later became the FAA in Fort Worth. Um, He was one of the original um, investigators for hijackings and plane crashes and things like that. So, um, so they were already in Texas, and that's actually what brought us to Texas. Okay, and then you were actually in Arlington, is that right? That's where you grew up in Arlington, Texas. I grew up in Irving, which is a suburb of Dallas, uh, where the um, Dallas Cowboys Stadium used to be. And then we moved to Arlington when I started high school. So I was kind of in the Dallas Fort Worth area most of my growing up. Was it hard to move? Um, so if you moved right before high school, was that a hard move for you personally, do you recall, or was it not a big remembrance? You know, I I don't remember it being a big event. Um, you know, I think I was excited about, it's, it's kind of fun when you move, you get to reinvent yourself a little bit. And um, I, I you know, went from being Jenny to Jennifer and, um, you know, I got my braces off, so I had a whole new look and a whole new name and, Got to kind of start over, so that was fun. That that's kind of funny because one of our other, um, actually, our first podcast was, was Johnny Wood, and he moved around as an army, um, army brat as he called it, and he would talk about that how you could kind of change a few subtleties as you got to a new place. So that's pretty neat. Well, I also think it's interesting to hear you say you got to reinvent yourself because, as our listeners are going to hear. 
this is a little bit of a common theme of you reinventing yourself, which I am just so excited to learn more about. So that is interesting. Um, in high school, what, what kind of things were you involved with? So pretty much anything music. I was um, in high school, I was in the performance choirs and I was in the show choir. So if you kind of think about Glee, the TV show Glee, that was a, my show choir experience. And um, we had a lot of fun doing that. Um, that that probably took up most of my time. I was also very, very active in my church. Um, the First Presbyterian Church in Arlington was very big, had a huge youth group, um, had a, a, a choir, a youth choir that probably had 50 singers in it. And we were the sanctuary choir for the early service. So just like the adults would sing for the later service. So we had weekly rehearsals and handbell rehearsals and choir rehearsals and youth groups. So between my church activities and my music activities at school, that took up most of my time. Were your siblings into music or just you? At this we, all had, we all had different art forms. My sister danced and was into journalism. Um, my brother played trumpet um, and I was a singer, which I actually got into by default because I thought I was going to join the band like my brother had. And every time I played the flute, I hyperventilated and passed out. So I joined choir by default. Very good. So you finished up high school, and where did you go from there? So when I graduated from high school, I went to uh, Fort Worth and went to college at TCU. And I loved every minute of it. Um, It was a little out of the price league for our family, but it was uh, closer to home than some of the other schools I was looking at that were equally expensive. So my parents gave me a huge blessing to get to go there. And I was only 30 minutes from home. So I was able to go home often, especially, you know, my first year I went home quite often. I think we're all kind of connected or at least three of us are. Um, My wife, Pam went to TCU and then uh, Carmel Lynn's two kids went to TCU. So we all have a little bit of um, fondness for, for Fort Worth and the, the campus there. Yeah. So what did you study at TCU? So I, I started out as a music education major um, and really fell in love with science while I was there. I, I was not um, very much into science when I was in high school, but, but getting into college just woke up that passion for me. And so I wanted to get double certified to teach music and science. And long story short, I wove my way around, then ultimately graduating thinking I was going to go into environmental law. So in four years, I graduated with um, a major and two minors, and I was only nine hours shy from three majors in four years. So I was busy. And so what were the actual major and minors you ended up with? So my major was political science. And then I had a minor in music and a minor in environmental sciences. So in college, you you kind of had a newfound passion for science, but you also started getting interested in law and and political science? Right. So what was interesting is when I first was going to go to TCU, I was going to go as a pre-law student. And um, I have... uh, my grandmother, my dad's stepmother, was uh, one of the first female lawyers to practice in the state of Idaho, and she was the first female judge and the first female legislator, and um, we were close, and everybody that knew me said, you should be a lawyer, and so it was kind of one of those, I never really thought about it, I just kind of started down that path, so I initially was going to school um, in the pre-professional program and was going to be pre-law. Um, But before I matriculated, I still was very, very interested and passionate about music. And so I asked about studying music. And if you didn't start as a freshman, as a music education major, you were going to be there for six or seven years. There was just no way around it. So I decided to go ahead and change my major before I even started to music so I could could start as a freshman with so many of those entry-level classes. And then I ended up going with a political science degree on a pre-law program, so. So that, that's very interesting because you've kind of, you hit a couple different things that you were very involved in. You were very involved in music and then you went into the, the sciences and then, and then went through law. You graduated from TCU and then what did you do at that point? Did you go off to grad school or did you get a job and work? No, actually I moved uh, to Norman, Oklahoma and I got a job in Oklahoma City 
And what's interesting about that, and I just love how God works, because God gives us, I think, the opportunity to find the path that he's made for us again and again and again and again until we find it, right? So here I had really this idea that I wanted to do music, but I ended up graduating, going the law way. And when um, when I graduated from college, I had two job offers um, waiting for me in Oklahoma. One was to teach science and music in a, in a um, private school. The other one was to work in a law firm. And I went to work in the law firm. So um, I worked as a paralegal for uh, the largest firm in the state. So what, what helped you make that decision to go to the law firm versus becoming a teacher? You know, I think some of it was um, financial, but I think a lot of it was my own sense of confidence in where I felt like I would uh, have the best skill set. And I've been working in offices all through, golly, since I was in middle school, I was I was very comfortable in an office setting. Um, you know, I didn't graduate with an education degree, so that wasn't required in the private school, but I felt like maybe I wouldn't have what it would take to be in the classroom because I didn't have that education and that, that classroom experience. So I think kind of my own sense of um, uh, what my value or worth was, was also what drove that. How long were you in Oklahoma? I was in Oklahoma for about a year and a half. At least uh, about a year and a half. And then at that point, what did you do? I moved back to Texas and I moved back in with my parents while I was trying to figure out what the next step was. Parents are great like that. Um, But I actually, I got my investment licenses and went to work at Fidelity Investments. Um, You know, I, I felt like after being a paralegal for a year and a half that maybe law wasn't what I wanted. And because the, the whole kind of the whole point of that was was to work for a little while and see if I wanted to go to law school. And after being a paralegal, I didn't want to go to law school. Um, looking back, I realize it's because paralegals are, are often very much about the trees and not about the forest. And I wanted to understand the bigger picture. Why do I do these little jobs and tasks that I'm doing? what does it mean? Why do I do it this way? And that was something that, um, you know, I didn't have the, the privilege of knowing as a paralegal. So when I ultimately went to law school and became a practicing lawyer, that was, that was knowledge I was able to impart to our legal secretaries and legal assistants who helped, helped my practice. I could help give them some of the big picture. Um, I think it made them better at what they did. So real quick then, coming back to when you're getting ready to leave your paralegal job, um, so you just kind of felt like, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, what kind of, um, did, you know, what was your kind of decision that really said, I think I'm going to move back to Texas. And in Texas, is that where you got your license for your um, investments? And what brought you to that decision? So it was kind of multifaceted. So, um, you know, the, the made-for-TV answer is that, I was ready to go back home and try something different and being a paralegal wasn't for me. Um, but there was also some relationship issues that, that were resolving in ways that I was ready for a change. Um, so that's kind of what, what moved me on was the combination of, you know, this was my first job out of college and I was working 80 hours a week and, um, I was burned out and, and it was wreaking havoc on my personal life as well as my professional life. So, um, so I moved back to Texas and, and, you know, I I was kind of flailing. I wasn't really sure exactly where I wanted to go. And, um, so I heard that Fidelity was hiring, Fidelity Investments was hiring. And, um, so it was, a it was initially going to be a short term. They were, they had just acquired the General Motors, um, investment retirement accounts and they needed to ramp up so that when those accounts went live they had specialists that knew everything about their accounts so I thought this is a stepping stone and um, so I got my investment licenses and went to work for Fidelity Investments and that ended up turning into a full-time position Um, I was one of a handful of people that was hired after the temporary period oh nice and so how long did you do that for then so I did that for about a year and a half, and then went to law school after that. 
So fidelity investments is kind of when you go to that direction, that's almost a complete pivot because <laughs> you were music, science, and kind of pre-law. And yeah, then you so- come out of that and you pivot into business. Now, I know you had some clerical jobs in, in the high school and growing up, but it still seems like you would have gone back towards music or science. That's the funny thing. And my dad and I have this um, kind of this longstanding joke because when I was filling out the gazillions of scholarship applications and and essays for colleges when I was applying, I kind of would take an essay and that I had written and manipulate it for the different scholarships or um, university applications. And there was a line in there that was something to the effect of, whatever I do with my life, I know it will involve music. And the funny thing is that that was, that, that was the little golden sentence right there, and that was the one thing that I never paid attention to. Because I think, to me, music was something that was just a hobby that I was going to do. And then whatever else I did was my job. And it was, you know, it was a while before I had the epiphany and it really was an epiphany that, oh, I can do music as my job. Um, so so the, the years then when you were doing, when you were in Oklahoma and then doing Fidelity and even um, once you started law school, were you at that point um, still involved with music through your church or really was music kind of um, quietly just um you know, hibernating, waiting for its big. It's always been there. I've been leading, I have been leading worship since I was 15. Gotcha. I mean, it has always been there. So even when I was working 40 hours a week in Oklahoma, I was at choir practice on Wednesday nights and I was in the choir loft on Sundays and then I'd go back to work. But, you know, but I did those things because that was always my, um, it was always my connection and my um, my peace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to touch on something. In your notes that you filled out for us, you you mentioned that you when you first went back to, to school, to grad school, you were working on courses towards an MBA very briefly, and then you said you switched. You took the LSAT and you went to law school on a scholarship. What changed there? Because you went from paralegal to business and then you're kind of you almost like dip your foot in the water there on the MBA but then you you pivot back to law it wasn't even a foot it was a pinky toe so I um when I got back to Texas and I was working at Fidelity I didn't know what to do with myself because remember I was working 80 hours a week in Oklahoma and when I moved to Texas and I went to work for a company that whose hours were tied to the stock market being open I was liberated you know at 4:30 in the afternoon I didn't have anything to do and I wasn't used to having all of this downtime I didn't know what to do with myself so I thought ah I'll just go to school fidelity will, will pay for it if I want to work towards an MBA uh yeah I'll go take a business class and see if I like it and I sat in an accounting class for about two weeks, three weeks. And I said, this is not for my brain. Mm-hmm. And, and that was all she wrote. And I remember my dad said, you can't quit a class. And I said, why can't I? I already have a degree. I don't have to take this class. So um, very, very quickly I knew that, that I am not a business-minded person. Jennifer. Then you went off to, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I haven't heard her say where she went to law school. I went to the University of Texas Law School in Austin. I just missed it. I'm sorry. But, uh, yeah, and you decided to go to law school, and at that point you still weren't convinced that uh, music was going to be a full-time job for you, right? Oh, not at all. I was still very involved. I was leading in a church, and, um, in fact, uh, Northwoods people know uh, Kenley Lang, and Kenley was the choir director at First Presbyterian Church in Austin. And when I joined the church, the choir was on tour in, I think they were in Estonia. And so I fell in love with the church and the people and the preaching before I ever knew anything about the music program. So that was an added bonus. So I, I've known Kinley a very long time and um, was able to really grow as a musician with him. Um, but so I was very involved there leading, leading worship, leading contemplative worship. 
Um, and then he started a professional chorus while he was in Austin, uh, where the singers are, are paid. And um, I was one of the founding members of that professional chorus. So all, that was all happening during law school and as a, as a practicing lawyer. What kind of law did you practice? So I had a general um, transactional practice. So uh, most people, they think of lawyers in the courtroom, but there's kind of two sides of things. Litigators are the ones that are the ones that are in the courtroom. And it's kind of a, a, I always say it's kind of a backward looking practice because you're looking to see what happened, what went wrong, whose fault was it, how do I make myself whole. And a transactional practice is a forward-looking practice. You're making the contracts, making the deals happen, bringing people together, trying to um, craft your documents so that your client is in the best position if something does go south. Um, So I probably spent about 80% of my time doing um, commercial real estate type work. So anything from helping the client acquire the dirt all the way to opening the shopping center, you know, signing the leases with the tenants, all of that. So that was probably about 80% of my time. And then the rest of my time was estate planning and probate, and then just some general business. So I'm going to, I'm going to get into what I think is probably the biggest conversation piece here that we have. And that is, and, and this is per your note, she said, we, we asked you the question, uh, was there a moment in time in your life that changed your path? And you said, definitely. And, and you, I'm going to use your sentence here. It says, I was diagnosed as being in textbook midlife crisis. And I just felt like diagnosed, diagnosed was a kind of a unique word that you use there. Um, can you like walk us through that? What was going on? You were at, you were practicing law. You're in Austin still because you had stayed there. And, and did that. So then kind of walk us into this. Okay, I will. So I am um, a big advocate of mental health. And um, I'm, so I'm not ashamed to talk about the fact that I have um, spent time on a counselor's chair. Um, so I um, was just feeling really lost and like, uh, kind of, is this all there is? You know, and I was just over 30, 32 years old. And I had gone in, you know, through law school, I I went on a full scholarship and went through law school and I got my dream job and I worked with people that I loved. And, you know, I was good at what I did. And yet I was miserable. Um, And so I sat down with a friend of mine who is a, a a psychologist she works with children but so I said you know Susan we need to talk and so she came over and we sat there and visited for a long time and she gave me the name of someone and and her comment was um, I want you to call her and tell her that I said that she needs to see you so it wasn't a did she have room in her practice for me or anything it was she needs to see you and um, and it was the perfect person for me and um, so we started the process of of walking through what the unrest was that I had. But so my friend Susan, who had come over and visited with me, as I described to her how I was feeling, she said, you have just described textbook midlife crisis. Textbook. And I said, oh my gosh, I'm only 32. <laughs> that doesn't bode well for me. But uh, but so that that was kind of the pivotal moment because what that did is it, is it put me on um, a trajectory of self-discovery and introspection and listening and prayer and waiting and waiting and waiting, um, which ultimately led me to a silent retreat, which is where I really got clarity on um, on what God was calling. And, and you know, the beauty of it, the, there's so many things about it that are so magical to me, um, but to be in the career that I was in and to be working with people who gave me the space that I needed to do that work, uh, that, that introspective work, um, is kind of unheard of in the legal profession. I mean, it's all about the billable hour. And, and, and what was even more fascinating is that the firm that I was working with when this all came down was not the firm I started with. 
we had merged into another firm, into a larger firm that was based in Dallas. And so while the people in my office knew me, the firm didn't know me. And so for the firm to be willing to say, you're valuable to us and we want you to go through this journey that you need to go through and we recognize that you may not want to stay with us when you come out of this journey was huge. That was huge. So that is huge. So real quick, how long between you talking to your friend Susan and her recommending your counselor, how long roughly did that process start to the point where you made the decision to leave? Like was that a year or was it a few months? Was it a couple weeks? The whole thing was probably about a year. Okay. Yeah. So it was a process. And, you know, the one of the things that, that my um, my mentor at the firm went to bat for me. And so I reduced my hours. I got off of the partnership track, um, reduced my hours, reduced my salary. And, um, and they gave me that space, which was amazing. Wow. So that, that's where I was going to ask you next is how did that conversation come about that you would go to the firm and start talking to them about your where you're at personally because that's that's kind of a tricky slippery sure. slope kind of well it is and you know um I, I don't know how else to say it but i think sometimes when you when you build up credit in the bank because you're a good worker and you're loyal and um you you go above and beyond and i had proven that uh, pull in some all-nighters to help other people's reach deadlines that they otherwise wouldn't reach. Um, I, I, people, I think, are more willing to give you some credit, um, you know, to loan you some credit. Um, but, but really, it it was my mentor. Um, Jim was uh, is a very strong, devout Christian man, um, Presbyterian. I went to a different church than I did. We didn't go to the same church, but he just um, had a heart of gold, and and he was a friend. And so I felt 100% comfortable going into him as if he were my dad and saying, I am, I'm stuck, and this is what I need to do to try to get unstuck. And, and God love him. He gave me a greeting card every day for like, Three months, I would come into when I would come into work. There would be a card on my chair from him, thinking of you, or he might have put a comic in it, or a scripture, or something every day. And I mean, that's just again, that's just not that's not the way it usually happens. That's awesome. That's really cool. So, let's talk a little bit about the silent retreat. Um, was it how would how did you find it? How did you get to that point? So that's a funny story. My, um, I had gotten to the point in my counseling where I felt like I needed to get away for a little while and be escape the legal world, escape the day-to-day stuff because living is noisy. And um, I just felt like I needed to get away. And But I didn't have any money, you know, because I, I had taken a cut at work and I was still trying to make a house payment and pay off law school debt and... Um, so I couldn't go away, away to these places that are silent retreat places. So I heard from somebody, there's this place in South Texas that you should go to. Well, what's it called? Well, I don't know. Okay. I heard three times from three different people about this place in South Texas that I should go to, that they had heard of, but nobody knew exactly where it was or what it was called. So, you know, I'm on the internet trying to find retreat centers and nothing's coming up. So I go into my uh, counseling appointment and I declare that I'm ready to go for a silent retreat. And my counselor says, my counselor says, oh, you should go to this place in South Texas. And before I could say anything, she said, it's called, and she, she knew the name of it because she had actually gone there when she was working on her dissertation to be to have quiet and I mean this place has a 300,000 volume library but it's a place called Lev Shemaiah L-E-B-H Lev Shemaiah which comes from the Old Testament it means listening heart and it is part of the old um, Kennedy Ranch and it's a portion of the Kennedy Ranch that was set aside and donated to the Catholic Church Um, and I don't 
know how it's staffed now, but when I was there, there was a priest and two nuns, and both nuns were canonically uh, recognized hermits. And one of the nuns and the priest did spiritual counseling, spiritual direction counseling. Um, And they basically just created a space for you to draw close to God. And they were there to help you in any way that they could. And there were people that were there for months and months on end. There were people that came in for a weekend. Um, How long was yours? I was there for a week. Okay. And, and they, you know, they have it structured so that, I mean, it's, it's very low cost, but they, but they expect things of you, especially if you're there for any length of time. So, you know, if that's part of your keep. So you mop the floors in the kitchen or you set the food out or you clean up the sanctuary or, or whatever. But so they use the people that, that come there to help them if they're going to be there for long periods of time. So coming out of the silent retreat, what was your epiphany? So I very, very clearly, um, in fact, I laugh about it now, but I remember at one point, because when I was at the retreat, the whole time I was there, I had music in my head and it was driving me crazy. So if I was walking out on the trails, I had walking music. If I was in the shower, I had bathing music. If I was trying to read scripture, every line in the scripture would trigger a hymn or a song or something that I knew that was based on that scripture. And so finally, one rainy, rainy night, I was sitting up in what they called the upper room. And I was sitting in the dark, listening to the rain hit against the windows, and I screamed at God. I said, you know, stop this music in my head so I can hear you. And very silently, I heard God say, I'm singing as loud as I can. That's awesome. So that opened up this dialogue, you know, of me listening to what God was calling me to do. And and so I got this very, very clear calling that I was supposed to go be a musicianary that I was supposed to go out and share the word through music. And that was all I got. I mean, I didn't get, here's how you do it, and here's the roadmap, and here's here's how you get to point A and point B. It was just, go do this. And on the drive back to Austin, I was processing. You know, I had the radio off, and I was just processing. What is What does this mean? I mean, I was so convicted. I, I totally understood about the disciples dropping their nets and going. It was just convicting. This is... I've been called. I'm doing it. Um, but I didn't I didn't know what it was, you know? And so every thought that came to my mind, there would be something on my drive home that affirmed that thought. And so it didn't matter what it was. I mean, do I go this route? There was a truck with the name of that on there. Do I go this route? There was a billboard. Do I go this route? It was a license plate. I mean, it didn't matter anything I thought. It was almost like God said, it doesn't matter. Just do it any way you want. Just do it. That is incredible to hear. We've had other guests that come on that have had a, a similar calling at different points of their lives, um, that they, they find the, what's going to make them most happy, and it becomes what they do for a living. It becomes their profession. So, I mean, that is, is so fortunate for you to have that. Because I don't think everybody has that. I don't think I've had that. And, but I do think that that uh, just must be an incredible thing to think about now that you're further down this path, that you went through this. But what a change you're going to make. <laughs> it I was mean, a you huge change. You week-long retreat, and your life had been pretty high-powered. You know, a lot of money, a lot of hours, legal. There's a certain, um, I, don't, I don't know, standard or, or viewpoint people have of lawyers and how they live their life and, and, the, and the money and it's considered in the, uh, a high um, financial career path to something that could be completely different. Oh yeah, there, yes, you hit the nail on the head. In fact, I later wrote a song about it called The Going Where You're Leading Me Blues. But um, but here's, here's a, a, just a, a neat little snippet story of how God provides when we're not even paying attention. So I, I told you before, I'm, I'm the youngest of three and my brother's in the middle and he lives in Florida and, you know, we're close, but we don't really talk that much. I mean, we just, it's infrequent that we have conversations. And my phone rang right before I was leaving on my silent retreat. 
and it was my brother. And, you know, immediately, like, what's wrong? Did something happen? Because we just don't talk that often. He was just calling to talk. And so he asked me what I was getting ready to do, and I told him I was going on a silent retreat, and he's like, oh, what's that? And so I told him, and he asked me what I was going to do with my dog. Well, what are you going to do with Lily? And I said, um, my neighbors are going to watch her while I'm gone. He goes, no, but like, like, he said, well, if you ever need me to keep her, I will. That's what he said. If you ever need me to keep her, I will. And I said, well, David, I appreciate that. But, you know, you're in Florida and I'm in Austin and that doesn't really make sense. And he's like, no, you know, to keep her. And I said, what do you mean to keep her? And he said, you know, like the kids want a dog. And so if you ever just need me to take her, I'll take her. Okay, what a random thing to say to me. Okay, thanks, you know, and so that was it. So here I am a week later up in the upper room screaming at God, God singing at me, and he's telling me he wants me to go be a musicianary, and I'm starting to throw out all the reasons why I can't. And I said, I've got Lily. And he said, no, you don't. Handled. That makes me cry. Oh, Handled. Gosh, that's beautiful. So I, you know, because that was part of the, I can't tour with the dog. And, um, and so my brother's family took her and she had an amazing life. I mean, way better than I could have ever given her. That is something. So how long after you left the retreat till you actually made the big move and where did you move to next? Okay. So I stayed in Austin. Um, I sold my house and, um, you know, another way that God provides, like, how am I going to do this? And so I just kind of put out an APB for my friends, a church and some of the people I worked with to say, you know, I, I need to do a work weekend. I need to get the house ready to go on the market. And I had, I said, I'll provide food and beverages. And so, I mean, I had a steady stream of food and beverages and I had probably 20 people throughout the weekend <clears throat> coming. They were weeding my garden. They were packing up boxes. They were repairing things that needed repairing. I mean, just because they loved me. And the house was ready to go on the market on Monday. I mean, that's how that worked. But so I moved into an apartment. And um, so from the process of me coming home from the silent retreat to really changing, changing uh, was nine months. So in that nine months period of time, I taught myself how to play guitar. I wrote songs and was in the recording studio. And within nine months, I was touring. Don't you think it's weird, the symbolism of nine months till you birthed your hmm. purpose, your passion, your dream, your, your life? I mean, that's such, a, that's such a spiritual time. My goodness. That is yeah. amazing. So how long was it from when you got back from the summer retreat until you left the law firm? It's a little bit longer than that, um, but I kept reducing my hours, reducing my hours, um, and while they were bringing in some new lawyers so I could help train them and, and kind of pass on my knowledge and, and what I did for the clients. Um, but, but they were wonderful because one of the things that I said, I, when I came back, I mean, I went right into to my mentor, to Jim, and I said, okay, this is what happened to me. And I'm going to be leaving the practice. And I said, you know, if you are able to keep me on the payroll until I've sold my house, I would appreciate it, but I understand if that's too much to ask. But so that was that was kind of the uh, that was the the metric that we were looking at was you know when can I get out of my house payment? And um, but so I stayed on. I was all, still in the apartment, but probably only about six or eight weeks, maybe a, a few months into the apartment before I I finally pulled that plug. So one thing I find interesting and I'm curious for you to answer this is a lot of times when we are growing and moving into something that's right for us the people who who know us are surrounded by us sometimes that's really hard for them to see us make these new decisions that we know are going to grow us something bigger how was your family and your close friends um I mean that's a you know that's a pretty you know, that's like one of those things like, yeah, she went to a silent retreat and came back and quit her, you know, I'm just curious, how was some of that relationships? Um, it was challenged. Yeah, it, they were challenged. Um, you know, my, uh, my parents have always been my biggest fans and, and huge supporters of me. Um, but they didn't get it at all. I mean, they just didn't get it. And, and my dad and I, I mean, we, 
we got crosswise a little bit with it, you know, and, and I remember being on the phone with him one time and he wanted to help me. And he was, my, my father um, retired for as, as being the head of the Texas Presbyterian Foundation. And so he was very connected. I mean, he'd been on boards and boards and boards before he was the head of the foundation. Um, so, I mean, he was very, very well connected in the greater Presbyterian church and, and which was a wonderful asset, but he wanted, you know, what's your business plan look like? What are you going to be doing? How, what can I tell people? And, and he, he couldn't wrap his head around the fact that I didn't know that. And I finally, I finally said that, um, you know, I'm not checking my intelligence at the door. You know, what is your worst fear for me? Is it that I'm going to be homeless? Is it that I'm going to be out on the street and I don't have a place over my head? Or, you know, I'm not going to allow myself to get to that point. I mean, if I have to go work in a grocery store or go pick up some odd jobs or whatever, if I asked every member in my church, could I sleep on your sofa for one night, I'd get through the whole year and still not have gotten through the church. So once I kind of let him know, I've thought about this, you know, um, that changed for him. He's, it, 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 his, his dad worry went away. And then when he came to my, my first concert, um, he came up to me with big crocodile tears in his eyes and he said, I get it. Aww. I get it. Yeah, I just know as a mother, I watched my daughter work all this way into law school, be an attorney, have a job, and then she tells me, oh, you know what, Mom? I'm like, what? So that, I mean, but then you see... You go to the program and you watch you watch it in action and you can't deny. You know there's no denying. Well, that is incredible. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit here. Um, you're married and you have a, a daughter. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm stealing a little bit of Carmel and Thunder here because she usually asks about this. Your husband is David, correct? Correct. How did you guys meet and kind of walk us into that? So that's a fun story and I'll try to keep it abbreviated. But I was on tour. I had been on tour for three months. And um, I was coming back down to Texas. I had toured our um, the Synod of the Sun. So our um, states in our presbytery, or in our Synod. And I was coming back into Texas. And I stopped off at my folks' house um, for a visit. It was in November. And Dad was getting ready. He was gearing up for their big annual board meeting at the foundation. So he was crazy. And my grandmother, who lived with my parents, um, uh, decided that when I, like the day I arrived, decided that she was done with dialysis and she didn't want to do it anymore. And so um, I ended up staying on to be her hospice nurse. And she lived a lot longer than anyone predicted that she would without the dialysis. So I never made it back down to Austin before I had this concert that I was supposed to go to, uh, to do in Galveston. And... Uh, they had brought me in for kind of the Thanksgiving time to do some to do some music, and uh, Grandma was still alive, and so I was really on the fence about whether I should go to this concert or not. And I was talking with the church, and and uh, so I went and visited with my grandmother, and she said, "You need to go. You need to do this." And I said, "Okay. Well, if Jesus comes for you, you need to go. Don't don't feel like you need to wait until I get back." So absolutely exhausted. I headed down to Galveston to do a program that my heart wasn't in because my heart was in Dallas where my grandmother was. And I remember being backstage and praying before I went out, just saying, God, my heart is not in this. I don't know how you're going to speak through me tonight because I feel so closed. And um, unbeknownst to me, my husband, my now husband, was who served on session uh, was one of the two people, he and the choir director were the ones that did not want me to come for the concert. And um, the choir director didn't like that kind of music. And my husband thought that the church would embarrass itself because they wouldn't fill the house and, you know, to bring in a recording artist. So he didn't want to go. He didn't get into, he went into Christian music, you know. And uh, so anyway, he had a free Saturday night. And so he stopped mowing the lawn and went in and got cleaned up to go to this stupid concert at the church and went and sat behind the tallest person he could so that he could just slump down and not pay attention. And he saw me walking around before the concerts, how I would combat my nerves was to go meet people in advance. And uh, he saw me walking around and he tapped the guy on the shoulder and he said, who's that? And he's like, well, that's the singer. 
And so David came up to me afterwards and he said, I was just spellbound the whole time. And that's where we met. And so that was at First Presbyterian Church in Galveston. And so we met on a a Saturday night and um, I helped lead worship the next morning and we were engaged by March. Wait, what month was this then? November, the end of November. And we were engaged March the 4th. Oh, for crying out loud. And you were still living up in Dallas with your parents in Austin. I was in Austin. Oh, you were in Austin. Yeah. Oh, my God. So your friend Margaret was one of the people that that we were able to get some information from. And she had mentioned to ask you about the way uh, you and David communicated after you met. So we communicated by... um, instant messenger on AOL, kind of like, remember the movie, You've Got Mail? So it was that and email. Um, We didn't actually talk to each other on the phone until Christmas Day. That was the, so so for a, a solid month, we were exclusively communicating by email and instant messenger. And then he called me on Christmas, it was Christmas night actually, and it was the most awkward conversation. I mean, we didn't have anything to say to each other. It was just stilted and we got off the phone and immediately got on instant messenger. That was weird. Wasn't that weird? Yes. Why couldn't we talk? I don't know. Um, But so that was Christmas. And then he asked if he could come and see me in Austin in January. I was doing a benefit concert at the beginning of January to raise money for the food bank there. And so he came up for that concert and then I went to Galveston, and it was kind of back and forth. And then in March, he took me to Sedona, Arizona to meet his parents, and he proposed to me at the Grand Canyon. Aww. Wow, that's kind of memorable there in itself. Yeah, yeah. And so, so how I, were you married then? You got engaged in March. We got married in September, so we hadn't even known each other a year. Oh, wow. And how long have you been married now? 14 years. Oh, my goodness. We'll be yeah, 15 in September. Oh, my goodness. So... I want to, I'm going to go back to the career here real quick because I think we're going to leave enough. Today you are the, I don't know what your title is with our church, but you run our, our, uh, our choir and then you also do our, our contemporary service and run that service and the music for that. I think the title is officially Director of Music and Worship. So right now it's all about uh, virtual worship. So I'm learning how to be a video editor and an audio editor as we create all of our virtual ensembles. But it's the, anything that's related to uh, the music aspect of the church and, and what worship looks like. And cool. she's doing an amazing job. That is for sure. Thank Mike, you. Mike, you're in choir with her, so you know her better than we do. So yes. that probably goes a long way right there. Yes. She has put energy into our choir like you wouldn't believe. I mean... People just love to come and sing with and for her, and uh, she's done a, a, just a marvelous job in, uh, in pulling our choir together, and I really appreciate that. So how do you go from... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, how do you go from Austin to Northwoods? There's, you end up in Galveston, you get married... Yes. So we get married. I moved to Galveston. Um, So that's where our daughter was born. So she's a BOI, which is a big deal down there to be born on the island. Oh, Um, but uh, so, yes. So we went through um, hurricanes together and near death after childbirth together. And actually, don't gloss over that for a minute here, because I know you did have a really difficult pregnancy and then you had a really beautiful experience. Do you want to just real quickly kind of touch upon um, how how your pregnancy and and birthing Katie and tell us a little bit about that? Because that's a pretty cool story. So uh, the pregnancy itself was uneventful, but, um, but I had, unbeknownst to anybody, it was never detected on any uh, ultrasound, um, but I had what's a condition called succinturia placenta, which means that I had an extra placenta, but it was not like a life-giving one that would have been a twin or something. Um, so when I, I delivered Katie and, and passed my placenta, but the other one was still inside, and so when the life-giving one came off, it, it ripped from the other one, if you will. And so I was bleeding internally for six days. Um, and, and I lost a lot of blood at, at, during delivery, a lot of blood. But, um, you know, I was never had a kid before. I didn't know what you're supposed to feel like after 
after you delivered a baby, right? So long story short, six days later, I went back into the hospital and that's when they discovered what was going on. And in the process of trying to remedy that situation, I hemorrhaged and I lost three liters of blood and um, was pretty close to dead. Um, so I went they emergency into the, you know, into the OR to stop the bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. But, but when I was in the operating room before I went under, I saw my grandmother up in the lights. So this was the one that had gone off of dialysis and that I was her hospice care nurse. And, you know, we had a lot of experiences together. She's had some near death experiences on my watch when I had the paramedics there pumping her heart back to life. And, um, but so she was there and not for a minute did I perceive that she was there to take me, but she was just there to hang with me until this was all over. And uh, it was very, very calming and, and reassuring and very vivid. Beautiful. So then after, so Katie, you guys stayed in Galveston all the way for her first 10 or how old is she now? Like 12? 13. She's 13. 13. So mm-hmm. you guys were in Galveston those 12 years or so. And then when, when did you come to, how did you get to Northwoods? So, um, <laughs> Kinley intervened really. Um, it was a phone call that I got. I was, you know, feeling kind of dissatisfied and, um, like there was more tour, there was more for me out there, um, and I hadn't been composing in a long time, and I had recently gone to a composer symposium that kind of was a reawakening for me, and um, I was ready to get back into what I felt that God was, you know, had called me to do, and I felt like I was kind of stagnating a little bit, um, and so I got a phone call from Kenley saying, you know, hey, would you ever? consider coming up here and I'm like uh, probably not um, you know my family's here this is where my life is my parents had just moved to Galveston after years and years of cajoling them to move to Galveston they finally moved to Galveston and um, uh, anyway long story short I after several conversations and some in-person interviews I just very clearly felt God saying this is this is your next step this is where you're going and you know, it was very hard, as you can imagine. It was extremely hard um, on the family um, to to do this because there was no way I was going to be able to live in Galveston and commute to Spring. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, just too long, ninety minutes without traffic, and um, so I came up and I got an apartment, and Katie moved with me, and so she started sixth grade up here because that was to me that was the best time to transition her was when she was starting intermediate school and um and so we started a commuter marriage and you know it's not been without its difficulties I, i'm not going to sugarcoat that it's it's challenging uh, in a lot of ways but um you know my husband said he said one of the reasons that i fell in love with you was your ability to go where god's leading you and so who am i to stand in the way of that I may not like it, but I have to support it because how can I say that's why I fell in love with you and then say that's that's why I'm mad at you? <laughs> so, um, so your husband and your parents still live in Galveston? So technically David lives here. We bought a house this year. So he lives here and then he has like a little man pad apartment in Galveston. So he um, he works here kind of long weekends. Um he works from home on Fridays and Mondays, and then he's in Galveston midweek. Oh, okay. And what about your parents? They're still there. So the house that the house that we had bought, we had bought a second house that they were renting from us, and that was going to kind of be our retirement pad when we were ready to quit doing what we were doing. And they ended up buying the house from us, so they're invested. Oh, well, I will say, Jennifer... From the minute, you know, I know when Kinley was leaving our church, everybody was so nervous because, of course, no one likes change and everybody loves Kinley. But you were a breath of fresh air and you brought so much life to the the music ministry and all three services from acoustic guitar to acapella to your full on singing. I mean, it is I can see where God definitely is speaking through you, through your through your ministry, through your um, what did you call it? A um, musicianary yeah thank you I, I I have a couple just little neat things that I got from from your dad and from from Margaret and the first one is from Margaret 
She talked about you running a marathon in, in Alaska. Had you been a runner before you started training for that? When I was a little kid, I was a runner. They called me Jogging Jenny. But um, but I, um, you know, it was just one of those moments when I thought, I, I want to do something different. You know, I want to I take on a new challenge. And so this was a really neat program. It supported um, the Leukemia Society. It's called Team in Training. And, yeah. um, and so they, they provide the professionals to help you train and then you you train with the team and then you get to go to some you know neat place to run a marathon now they also do um cycle races as well bicycle races but um so yeah i went to anchorage alaska and and ran a marathon with a stress fractured femur unbeknownst to me at the time so uh i thought i had pulled a muscle right before the race but i had actually broken my leg and uh Oh recovery was a little rough. Recovery was a little, I couldn't walk for, for a while, but uh, yeah. but I, I finished it. She, she, Margaret had mentioned in the notes that that got her running again after having a child, and you inspired her with some of that, which was kind of neat. Um, the other uh, topic I want to bring up is your dad mentions um, that we should ask you about the great toothpick episode. Oh, good Lord, have mercy. I'm never going to live that down. Yes, yes. So this is one of the most traumatic experiences of my life, and my parents think it's funny, and so they keep bringing it up because it's funny. But uh, when I was uh, maybe five or six years old, and people that know me now would never believe that I was a chronically shy kid. I mean, hide behind the legs kind of kid. And um, my, I come from my dad's side of the family is a big family, so I'm the fourteenth grandchild on my dad's side of the family. So a lot of the family had come in from the Northeast and we had taken them out to this nice restaurant and um, we were kind of waiting in the lobby area as dad was finishing up with the bill. And I went over to the toothpick dispenser to turn the little dial to get a toothpick out and the thing broke. And so the toothpicks just start flooding out of the toothpick dispenser. Well, of course, I'm absolutely mortified. And I'm trying to put them back in as fast as they're coming out. I'm sure it looked like a Lucille Ball thing, you know, but I kept doing that. And and somebody said, oh, what's going on with Jenny? And, of course, then everyone started laughing because it looked funny, and I started crying. And, yes, that's the great toothpick caper. So <laughs> now the whole world knows. So um, I, just to kind of wrap this up, your story has been phenomenal, um, you know, from – growing up and loving music to going to college and, and music being a part of that and then science and then political science leading you towards law and becoming a, you know, passing the bar, you know, having a law degree, passing the bar and being a practicing lawyer for several years. And then all of a sudden having an epiphany that changes the course of your life. With that, you have a daughter that's in middle school or going into high school somewhere in there and um, as you as you look back at this, how does that affect your parenting? You know, it, that's a really interesting question. I I think that um, it's changed the way I would have parented had I not had these experiences. Um, you know, my husband, by contrast, he's ten years older than I am, and you know, he's had the same job that he's been in. He's a lawyer. And, I mean, he's been in the same firm. This is where he summer clerked, and this is where he's always been. And it's his family, and he loves what he does, and he can't imagine being anywhere else, which is why he's still there and we're doing this commuting thing. Um, so it's just such different um, perspectives that we bring. And so I think we are a good check and balance for each other as we're parenting. Um, you know, Katie is Katie got the best of us. Um and David's stubborn side, but um, but she she has the ability to really master anything she attempts. She's just very very bright and very capable, um, and so she she changes her course a lot um, because there are so many things that interest her that pique her interest. And so I think um, the fact that I have had as many not just jobs but careers as I've had has um, helped me have a greater understanding of 
you know, letting her test the water, stick her pinky toe in and see if this is the class for her, um, then, then maybe my husband would have without, without my, um, without my perspective. So, um, you know, everybody wants their kids to find their way and be happy and, and, we also want them to find something and glom onto it, right? And, okay, this is what you're going to do. But I, I think it's silly when we ask our kids when they're six what they want to be when they grow up, you know? Absolutely. I barely can ask my 21 and 23-year-old that. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I've, I've, if I've said it once, I've said it so many times to her and to, you know, my nieces and nephews, you do not have to know what you're doing right now forever. You just need to know what you're doing right now, and that's okay. And and it nothing that you do is irreversible. I mean, it's there's no reason that you can't find other passions and pursue other things. And I, th- I think that I mean for me, that's um, that's what's given me life. Was was part of it was a searching process. I love what I'm doing now. I can't imagine not doing what I'm doing. Um, I was wondering, I was going to ask you, do you feel settled? Do you feel at peace? Do you feel like roots are, are, are forming? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I obviously churches change. Obviously, I was doing this at another church and I've, I've moved to here. But, um, you know, I, I stepped into bigger shoes when I moved here. More responsibility, um, the larger congregation. And, um, you know, and it's allowed me to spread my wings in different ways and and opened up new opportunities for me, but but without question, I have I have found home in what I'm doing, which is a combination of music and ministry. I mean, it's that musicianary. How do I how do I share God's word, and how do I do that with music? And um, and I just feel like I've when God was saying to me, it doesn't matter how you get there, just get there. Um, you know, it took me a while, but I found my way, and and I've I think I've arrived. So how was the pandemic now that you, I mean, you've been at Northwoods for uh, two years, three years, I don't know exactly how long, but um, how was the pandemic? I mean, we're four months in now. I mean, that's a big change for everybody, but I would think it would change a lot for you because we went to work seeing from a distance. Yeah. So it's been a big difference. So I've been at Northwoods um, for a little over a year. Mother's Day was a year. And um, this um, this has great impact on what I do, what I did, and what I do. I mean, it, I've talked with the choir a lot and the band a lot about the fact that we're probably not going to be singing for a while. And so how, you know, one of my big issues was how do I keep my volunteers engaged as worship leaders when we're not going to be leading worship for a while? So that's why we've been doing a lot of these virtual performances um, and it's it's been challenging for for everybody. I mean, it's intimidating to put headphones on and sing to a camera. And I mean, I'm a professional, and it's intimidating to me. But it's intimidating to do that, and then to go back and you listen to yourself and you watch yourself, and that's all. You know, it's just your naked voice, and that's all there is. And you're going to turn it over to me, you know. And so I have such respect for. Uh, for my volunteers and for mastering the technology that many of them have had, you know, no knowledge of how to do these things. When we first started, I was teaching people how to turn their cameras around. So to be in selfie mode because they didn't know how to do that. And now they're like old hats at sending me these recordings and they're even laughing at themselves and sending me some bloopers. And um, I mean, they've come so far so fast and um, we've all had to, have an exponential learning curve to, to I think, offer the really high caliber worship that we're able to offer online. Um, I'm just, I, I couldn't ask for uh, more dedicated volunteers to make that happen. I'm so grateful. So on Mondays on the, on Facebook, Northwoods has a Facebook page, and on Monday you put out a uh, Music Monday, is that correct? Yes. So this, the staff, when we were trying to figure out when this was a very first starting, you know, how do we keep our congregation engaged? You know, how do we reach out to them throughout the week and have have some way of them knowing that we're thinking about them 
and that we miss them and we miss being together. And so um, in a staff meeting, we kind of brainstormed and this is what came out. So Music Monday is one of my, it's really one of my favorite things to get to do. Um, but what I try to do is to explore, um, you know, some of the musicians that we have in the church. And um, it, it, it doesn't go as well as I hoped it would go because it's hard to bring those things together. And um, there's so many moving parts to put those videos together. So you get more of me and more of Todd than I would have dreamt of that Music Monday being. But, um, but we still enjoy um, trying to stretch and do different things. And I've, I loved uh, my daughter played for us and, and we've had a brass ensemble and um, just some, some different things. So each week it gets more challenging as I try to think, okay, well, what can I do now? Oh, Thomas and I will do a duet next week. I'm all oh. for it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> we, that's what needs to be cut right there. I mean, when we talk about cutting something out of the podcast, it's that no. I'm not going to be doing a duet. <laughs> or being part of the choir, because I don't think that's going to be good for, for Jennifer's career at all. <laughs> well, Jennifer, we really appreciate you taking time tonight to meet with us. I know you. it's a long day for you with um, – we're recording this on a Sunday night and um, your daughter's just back home and whatnot. So we just cannot thank you enough for taking time to speak with us. And I'll tell you, I mean, you just wow me every time I hear your story and the different parts of you. And um, I I just want to still learn more because you're an impressive woman. And I love that you continue to just follow your passion and listen for where God is leading you. And, and, I want to hear your song, um, following and leading the blues or whatever that song was. Okay. All right. I'll send you a link to it. I think it's on my website. In fact, can, I'm sure. Can, of we, it. can we link it to the uh, podcast in the future? Sure. Yeah. The website is jenniferkline.net. And so on, on there are links to most of my choral anthems that I've got published and, um, all of my, um, contemporary stuff which is what I was writing when I was touring is on there as well and you can you can go listen it's all it's linked to a SoundCloud account so you can listen to it for free just go right on my website right we'll put all that in our podcast notes for our listeners as well very good thank you thanks so much I appreciated this thanks for listening to more to my story podcast if you enjoyed this podcast please rate and review us on your podcast service And please also share us with your friends and family. You can find more about More to My Story podcast on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages.